Before I begin today's podcast, I just want to issue a content warning. So this episode contains discussion around suicide, mental health and self-harm. So please, if any of these things are upsetting to you, look after yourself and make sure you listen with caution. Your health and well-being is the most important thing here. Also, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or are in need of counselling and or a person to talk with, do not hesitate in getting in touch with your local mental health crisis assessment team or youth line, who are reachable at 0800 37 66 33 for immediate services. Everybody in the system is stressed. Everyone's struggling to cope with what there is. Avocado on Toast will act as your media breakfast, brunch, lunch and dinner. It's a show about millennials for every generation, taking and making conversations we've had at parties, with friends and with strangers into tangible discussions around wider, more socially impacting problems we face as students and young professionals. I'm your host Hazel Osborne and today on the podcast we will be discussing a topic that is very close to so many of us in Aotearoa, the mental health crisis we have here in our very own backyard. As we lurch into September, September of an election year where we take the opportunity to vote, politics has become increasingly focused on mental health services in New Zealand. The state at which we are barely functioning shows the climbing rates of suicide and depression. And today on the podcast will be a discussion centred around change. We must acknowledge our current infrastructure in order to change it. And the three people I have interviewed for this episode all discuss the power of a single voice, the power of knowledge, and the power that the government has in order to secure the future of this country. My three guests today, Scout, Sam and Marianne, all discuss these issues in depth. And all having had lived experiences of the public mental health sector, know that now is the time for change. Already our DHBs across the nation are spread so thinly that many aren't getting the help they need being turned away and deemed not sick enough to come back when they're suicidal. It is so apparent that the way we treat mental health and the stigma it carries in Aotearoa is a contributing factor to the crisis we face currently. It would be excellent if we lived in a country where what was in place sufficed. However, as you will hear on the podcast today, there is so much pain, mistreatment and lack of funding with the public mental health sector that those who need it most are slipping through the cracks. My first guest today is Scout. Now this interview was done over Skype, so please forgive the quality of the audio. Scout quotes in their Twitter bio, a known local activist. This is because not only is Scout an advocate for trans and disability rights, Scout uses their own lived experience and qualification as a trained mental health worker to protest the mental health funding of the Canterbury DHB. Currently studying to become a counsellor, Scout discussed with me the flaws in the medical model and that there are many factors our DHB don't consider, the importance of considering the full picture when it comes to mental health, and the fact that this is an election year, because we have the power to decide on which people will honour and uphold our human rights. My name is Scout Barbara Evans, I'm 22 and Dunedin based, I'm a qualified mental health support worker and I work doing um, advocacy and activism around the mental health sector and around other human rights issues and healthcare issues. Mm. Um, 
I'm not working at the moment because I'm studying to become a counsellor. I think you said somewhere that because of kind of like your mahi, because of your work that you do as an activist, that pushed you to study and eventually become a qualified mental health worker. Is that correct? Yeah, well, in my entire kind of education journey, it was actually when I was a teenager that I realised that um, both in New Zealand and Australia, because I was living in Australia at the time, there's so many limits in the mental health sector and so much that there needs to be but can't happen. So I actually started out studying a bachelor in psychology. Oh, yeah. At um, University of Southern Queensland, and that didn't work out. <laughs> I struggle with um, academia quite a bit, so I wasn't able to stay at university. And I came back to New Zealand, and I fiddled around and did some time unemployed, did some time um, full-time mentally ill, mm. <laughs> did some more time um, studying business, and then I got back into the mental health sector, where yeah. I studied to become a mental health and addiction support worker and I graduated last year and then went straight back to study to become a counsellor. Wow. Been a big journey of lots of different directions but I think the place I ultimately want to be is the mental health sector. Yeah. Um, Do you think that's because of kind of like your own experiences with um, mental health and all of the kind of issues that come with it? I mean, my lived experience is that support is really hard to access and, you know, if there was adequate support in the community for everybody, if everybody was able to access preventative care, we wouldn't be in this situation where we've got so many people having such a rough time that they're ending up in a hospital if they're even lucky enough to get a bed. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a huge motivating factor for me, and especially as a mentally ill person, you know, the best people in the mental health sector that I've had are the ones who are able to have that empathy, and it's really hard to have that degree of empathy if you've not lived it. Yeah, for sure. It's a quote from one of your articles that was published, I think, in 2016. And I just found it, like, I had a bit of a snort at it because you you said, I'll quote you here, for all the complaints that everyone is addicted to technology, New Zealand isn't very good at using Google. So (laughs) that's in... very good at using Google, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that's in response to, um, like, trans rights and issues and those things that you obviously have a lot of incredible opinions about but yeah I I, mean as a transgender person it's my life yeah no exactly it's your lived experience as you said before opinions about you know the quality of my own life and (laughs) um that quote came from years and years and years of frustration also that you are an advocate for stop the cuts so the cuts on I actually just relaunched that like two days did you well that's (laughs) good timing it is, yeah. It's. Um, I was hoping to revamp it and start out with new graphics and um, everything, but yeah, I've restarted that because there's two months to the election. Mm. Mental health is a massive issue, and I there are a lot of people doing the work, but the more voices we have that are um, 
speaking about what the issues are and saying you need to be remembering that this is an election year that you know you have the power to vote on the people who get to decide whether or not they uphold our human rights mm. that's really that's the thing about upholding like basic human rights like I think I was seeing um, in 2016 Kevin Haig like stated that the DHB were struggling to cope with the erosion of funding and as well as like an increase in patients and that kind of thing and then people are like well there's been more there's been more people who have been hired to cope with the influx of patients but then I mean you should, you can kind of look at statistics either way and put a positive spin on it from either of your political standings but I think the facts are that there aren't enough people helping or there aren't enough people being hired for the amount of people who need help and people who need um, the support, like the mental health support, and that they're not yeah. getting it. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, and I think there's so many people who desperately want to help, I guess, are going through the training so that they can help. You know, I'm in a class of 60 amazing people who desperately want to work in the social services sector and want to be able to help. And, you know, right through the place that I study, there are people studying in different areas that have the same purpose. So it's not that there's a lack of us wanting to go into the sector. Mm. It's that there's this, you know, I talk a lot in my work as an activist about institutionalisation versus deinstitutionalisation and about different models of healthcare. So for myself, what I know works for me I prefer more holistic models of healthcare and as tangata whenua I use um, you know, my local Māori mental health team as mm. opposed to the medical community mental health teams. Yeah. And, you know, everyone finds that different different ways forward work for them. But that it, it's really hard to access that kind of holistic mental health care. That kind of care that acknowledges that you know, maybe a lot of your issue right now is that you're living in poverty and that's what's getting you down. Or maybe a lot of this is because of this particular demographic that you're a part of that is heavily marginalised and that's what's making it hard for you. Like, the medical model assumes that the, the cause for everything is medical, that it's in your own head. And that the way to fix it is see a psychiatrist and take medication and that works for a lot of people and there is scientific proof that a lot of mental illness you know has some stuff in your head that is happening but it doesn't take into account the whole picture yeah that's really true because like the whole picture obviously can include so many different variables I mean everybody is different exactly and so we have all of these people who are trained to work in the mental health sector, but they're trained to work not as doctors or not as psycholo psychologists. And, you know, it takes a long time to study to become a psychologist and there's this, or a psychiatrist, and there's this heavy, you know, the people who are considered right, the people whose, the weight of what they say matters the most and is the biggest, tends to be the psychiatrists. But... Quite often, you know, they're privileged enough to be able to 
go to medical school, they're privileged enough to be able to spare all of that time to that training. And then quite often they don't have the lived experience. They, you know, their experience of mental illness is what's in a book. It's not living it. Mm. I think it's a massive strength to have Mm. in your back pocket that experience in the mental health sector, whether it's yourself or a close family member. But also, I think in a lot of cases, the focus on treating or fixing mental illness is it's not going to work. For a lot of people, that's that's not what the issue is. The issue is that they're struggling because they live in poverty or they're struggling because they're a marginalised person. And those ideas come from a lot more radical models of mental health care. So, you know, we've got the medical model and then we've got different radical models like feminism was one for ages and it basically isn't the most popular opinion about mental health but it's talking about the fact that there are environmental factors that aren't acknowledged by our DHBs who do the bulk of our mental health care. Yeah well because the kind of crux of it is discussion and so to mm. to push forward there needs to be visibility, there needs to be discussion about mental health and um, and yeah, a lot of I people avoid, yeah, a lot of people kind of avoid talking about it because they don't consider themselves to be, like, sick enough or they're kind of ashamed of their, of their mental health and if it's, like, kind of bad and they've never experienced it with their family or their friends... It comes as kind of a shock. I think it's like the condition of like New Zealanders as well. We're really like, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Like, keep going. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's a, it's actually a really unhealthy way to go about things. Like, mm. you know, not everyone's going to find that talking about something is going to magically fix it, but talking about something creates that conversation, creates the dialogue, and that reduces a lot of the stigma. Mm. And the stigma is what prevents us from being able to access adequate housing and be able to work and things like that. Mm. I um I ran for mayor in Dunedin last year. Yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> and the Otago Daily Times were doing these interviews with every single candidate for mayor. And, you know, the last two questions for every candidate were different. But the questions that I were asked were does Dunedin have anything to worry about in regards to your psychiatric history? Oh, my God. And, um, That's so inappropriate. Does Dunedin have anything to worry about about you being transgender? Oh, my God. <laughs> or something Who was interviewing you? I can't remember the exact wording, but that was the gist of it. And um, I sort of said to both of them, um, no, I'm a fully capable person. I have you know, all of these perspectives that other people don't have, I actually think it's a strength, not a weakness. Yeah, for sure. I think something people, a lot of people don't understand about being in a workplace and experiencing any form of mental distress is that through most workplaces, you can access totally anonymous counselling that your workplace gets billed for if it's related to work. Mm. Um you know, if you're experiencing stress or you're experiencing a rough time with other things in your life, you know, it's accessible. And 
no one necessarily has to know about it, but you're not going to get pushed out of your workplace for accessing help. Yeah. I think you said like the holes in the mental health service and all those kinds of things, they don't fall on the mental health workers and it's kind of more the government's job to find, like to fund appropriately. And so... The the mental health services do every single thing that they can every single day to make things better for all of their clients Mm. and, you know... They're burning themselves out trying to work in a system where they don't have the money to, or the extra staff to do the work that they need to do. Mm. You know, this is a government issue. This is a funding issue. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people blame it on a face. So they blame it on the person that they can see who is trying to help them. But it's really... It's a lot. It's a it's a bigger issue than that. It's a bigger issue than just the people who are pushing themselves to the limit. Yeah, and you know it's very easy just to blame that face, but the thing to remember is that that face is a human too, and they are reacting in this way to having this client who might be a little bit difficult for them mm. because they actually don't have the resources, so they're stressed. Yeah. You know, everybody in the system is stressed. Everyone's struggling to cope with what there is yeah. and what there and, isn't. Yeah, and at the moment, there's not enough. Absolutely. My next guest is Sam Haynes. Sam is a politics student at Victoria University. The eldest of three brothers, Sam discusses three months after the suicide of his younger brother Mark what it was like watching his brother go through the public mental health system and it ultimately failing him. Trained mental health workers are stretched to their absolute limit and the disconnection between each DHB as a result of funding is in a way just as harmful as the underfunding itself. With an intimate view of public mental health services, Sam then discusses the way in which Mark was affected by this discontinuity and Sam's own experience in trying to find adequate grief counselling as a student in Whanganui Atara, Wellington. I'm Sam, I'm 22, I'm a politics student at Victoria. Um, I'm originally from Fakatani, but I live here in Wellington now and up until about the middle of last year I hadn't had much experience with the mental health system and um, the experience I do have is just anecdotal based on my experiences with my um, watching my younger brother try to access treatment in Wellington um, for his depression and then following um, his suicide a few months ago uh, my own experiences um, with grief counselling and sort of things surrounding dealing with his death. I don't really have any special expertise, but I can offer a perspective on what the system feels like from the inside, so to speak. So you obviously have a very personal connection to the public mental health sector. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Do you just kind of want to kick it off and have a little talk about that? Yeah, well, um, kind of, where to start? I've had, um, I'm from a family of... um, Three, three boys, um, and my I'm the eldest, and my um, the the middle one, my my younger brother Mark. In 2015, he no 2016, he was he started his first year at Massey, uh, Massey Wellington, and um, he went through a bit of a tough time. 
And because of experiences he had with drugs in high school, as far as we can tell, this is our best guess, he came to university after kind of a few ups and downs and yeah, we thought we thought it was pretty much okay. First semester, everything was pretty good. He met a girl, you know, he was very happy. And then yeah, he kind of got into some sort of relationship relationship troubles and he basically had what I'd call a total mental breakdown. And he yeah, it sort of started a um a long process of sort of him struggling with his mental health and depression. And he, yeah, he, because he, I'm down here, obviously, I'm in Wellington too, and my family's not from Wellington. Um, I was the first person to know about it, and um, from my family, only I knew about it for quite a long time. Um, so trying to look out for him and make sure he didn't hurt himself because um, he started um, self-harming, like, um, in quite a sort of severe, kind of alarming way. Um, he, yeah, he stopped going to lectures, and he... Yeah, he kind of really went downhill very fast and in a way that even though he'd had problems in the past and we kind of knew that he was fragile because of these experiences he's had, it was really unprecedented and there was kind of no, there was nothing in the, there was, even though he'd had his issues, it was very much like the worst I'd ever seen him by such a long stretch and it was very, very difficult to, um, to know what to do because I'd never, you know, but until you're in a situation like that, it's it's kind of unthinkable how you're going to react. To if you're in a situation where if someone disappears, you legitimately think that they could kill themselves. Until you're in that situation, you, you really have no idea how you'll react. And it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's it's not exactly something that you should have to deal with or that you're even taught how to deal with or equipped to deal with. Mark saw people in the public health sector, yeah, correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so my parents found out after a while because, you know, you can't really keep something like that hidden. Even even with the benefit of quite a lot of distance, they, they sort of found out. And, um, yeah, he downplayed it for a while, but eventually they kind of, they came down and saw him and sort of saw how, um, you know, saw how much he had deteriorated and how bad he was. And um, so they took him, he started going to counselling at Massey, um, and they sort of referred him to the Wellington Hospital and the sort of public health system down here in Wellington. And um, yeah, I, all I can I was there for a lot of the the Wellington Hospital staff. I took him to A and E because of um, suicidal thoughts and so thoughts of self harm and actual self harm incidents. And because it wasn't it wasn't like basically my experience of the public health system in Wellington is waiting in the A and E waiting room for seven, eight hours at a time, mm. and then seeing someone who basically looked like they were jumping from case to case to case, seeing them for about five minutes, them asking if Mark had been prescribed antidepressants, which he had and he was taking, and then like looking at his medical, you know, his, his medication sort of documentation for a very short amount of time, saying there was not much we could do and to come back if he got worse. And like he was, he looked pretty bad, like... He was shaking a lot of the time. He was pretty manic. He looked like, pardon me, using a bit of a stereotype, like if you can imagine someone coming down from like a sort of drug high or, or something like that, like he looked out of it, not not just sad, but like he looked like he was not in his right mind. Like this was someone clearly dealing with something that was, you know, pretty severe, pretty serious. And so even though he looked 
in the state. Yeah. You were only seen for five minutes still. It's got to be a funding issue. It's got to be a funding issue because if they have enough money to do adequate treatment, then why wouldn't he be seen if there was enough money? You know, mm. why, why would it be so poor if they had enough money? Because it, it can only be a funding issue. And I'd just like to point out that um, w- when we were taking him to the a and in, in Wellington, he had, like, you know, obvious evidence of, like, severe self-harm, like scarring and open wounds and stuff like that. So it wasn't only his sort of behaviour, it was also... It was evident on his body that he was, you know, doing this kind of stuff. So they took him up to um, um, Fagatani. They took him home, and he was institutionalised. They put him in the mental ward for a little while. It was such a long time of being batted around by different people in Wellington, from the messy counselling staff to the Wellington Hospital, who'd say they couldn't really do anything about it once he was on antidepressants. So yeah, I think if he had have got the standard of care, or even higher standard of care in general, but if he had got the standard of care he got. Um, when he went home to Fakatani, from the start of his sort of, um, you know, sort of mental breakdown in Wellington, if he had have got that immediately after, I think there's a very distinct possibility that it could have been preventative. Because do you think that kind of like bouncing all over the place from like uni counsellors into kind of like other counsellors and th- those that kind of situation, it lets people kind of slip through the cracks a bit? Oh, absolutely. Well, the only the only reason that we were able to bounce to the extent that we did, in the sense that we kept going to the people we were referred to, was because I was there and my parents eventually were there. Mm. Like, Mark would not have been bounced. Mark would have been told to go somewhere else, and he wouldn't have. If he had have just been on his own, in the condition that he was in, he wouldn't have gone to the next person that he was referred to. Like, pretty much every step in the program, in the in the process, he was just referred to someone else. It was very much a sort of, I guess, passing the buck type system. Yeah. Do you think that if we had better funding, but if there was to be like a, like an hour and a half session or something where yeah. the person could sit down, talk about what's going on, and then they could be referred on to somebody who is a lot more specialised? I think yes. But then I also think kind of in a related but maybe slightly different way, the root of the problem was that, like, Massey was his primary health provider, right? Because he's registered at the student counselling and student health thing. That was his doctor. So, like, the mental health care available at the Massey-Wellington thing is basically, from what I understood it, it's, it's geared towards getting you through exam stress and, like, minor things so that you can focus on your assignments. So it's... Even though that was his, like, that was where he went for his health care, that was his doctor, that was where he got his prescriptions from, that kind of stuff. They didn't have um, mental health care available that, or, like, I don't know if they didn't have it available, but at least he didn't get mental health care that was, um, like, just kind of kind of general. It was, it was all kind of tailored towards your academic success, your uni life. Like, it wasn't the kind of care you would expect from your health provider, and I think, like, in terms of like a screening, a screening would have been good because he wouldn't have been like bounced around in the system that's just supposed to give you like notes and agritats and like tell your lecturers that, you know, your grandma died, so can you do this exam in daylight? Like it was, it was very much not what he needed. And I think like it, it, it wasn't, it's not like the uni was asked to provide something that they, it wasn't in their scope to provide because the uni was his doctor. The uni was his health provider. It was where he was registered. Like, that was his GP. Because obviously you want to have to rely on your primary health. No, exactly. Do you think people potentially are discouraged from seeing somebody about their mental health 
because there's this like arduous process that they have to go through and so they don't want to go and see this person because it seems kind of like impossible to get to any point where they're happy with what they're talking about or with who they're seeing. Obviously when you're seeing somebody with counselling, even just seeing somebody that you're not comfortable with can affect the process completely. Yeah, I can say definitely in Mark's case, he didn't he didn't want to go see a counsellor. He he basically he was he was kind of a very um quick fix person, like he wanted instant solutions to problems and he was very impatient. So the only reason he really went to see a counsellor and to see anyone at all was because he thought antidepressants were the solution to all his problems. So if he didn't want antidepressants and if he wasn't kind of relying on in his head relying on antidepressants to fix all his problems and make him feel better he wouldn't have gone to see a counsellor like it just wouldn't have happened so in the whole process he was kind of very sort of skeptical of it and I don't know I think they kind of assumed that he would be engaging with the process to the fullest and Mm. I think that's definitely a failure on his part but at the same time like you can't expect people who are like severely mentally ill to be like willing participants and like engaging with the process to the fullest extent they can because like if you expect that yeah maybe it's the the ill person's sort of fault that they didn't get seen properly but at the same time that's going to happen like we need a we need a healthcare service that assumes that some people you know are going to be hesitant to access mental health care services uh, you know they're not going to engage with it fully immediately you know mm. some like especially males like it, it's it's a huge um step to discuss your mental health openly with someone and there's a huge stigma against it. Like not everyone is just going to immediately like seek out the exact solutions that they need. Like there should be like things in place that can, you know, identify what people need without them explicitly asking for it because not everyone will explicitly ask for it all the time if they need it. Mm. Well, it's, it's actually, I think it's quite naive of people to assume that they would come out and be like, oh, I need help. Because it's encouraged in New Zealand a lot to come out and be like, hey, ask for help. Like, show us that you need this, this and this, you know. But then if these people are coming out and asking for help, which is a huge step in itself, they're not received with, like, a solid foundation of healthcare, then how is that ever going to work, you know? I think I definitely agree because... Pretty much, I think if someone's attempting to access mental health care in the first place, they should kind of be evaluated. I don't know, like just the fact that there was such severe evidence of self-harm and that they kind of assume that, yes, he's on his antidepressants, he's taking it, like, you can leave. Like, But then this, you know, this recent injury, like severe injury, clearly everything wasn't okay. They didn't kind of address that. They just sort of, you know... They said, like, oh, this is all in order. Let's see the next person. Like, yeah. something was clearly wrong with that process. Like, there clearly was still something that needed to be addressed. And then when he, you know, when he got taken to Fakatani, which is clearly, it doesn't have, as, as far as I know, as far as I could tell when it was happening, it doesn't have the kind of overload that Wellington does. Like, they were able to see him a bit more. They I didn't, they, they saw that he was a danger to himself. And then he was, he was taken into sort of, I don't know what you call it, but he was he was locked up in the mental health ward for a while under sort of the the custody of um, you know mental health people and, and mm. watched and given a new regimen of drugs and they kind of waited to see if that was working and then he improved to an extent and then he was released, which I would regard as kind of maybe not an ideal case, but at least a case of 
Um, they, they, you know, trying they, to find a solution. Yeah, they identified a problem. You know, him harming himself, which was like pretty obvious to you know, you just had to look at him. And then they, you know, they took him in. They stopped him harming himself. They worked on some solutions, and then they, um, you know, they found someone and they released him. Like they actually did something about a problem which was very obvious. Well, it's all about taking action with the patient, I think. And a lot of people like to put the blame on the mental health worker. Which oh, is like I think it's it's very much an organisational thing. Like I'm yeah, not any, sure. all the people in the Wellington system, like they had the best intentions and they they wanted to do the best they could. It's not it's not to blame any individual mental health worker. Like they can only do the best they can in the system they're operating with. I'm not mm. not not to blame any individual person. It's very much a sort of structural problem. Yeah, like it's not to say at all that they didn't want to do the best they could and were doing the best they could. Yeah, well, because I've read somewhere recently. Um, I'm not too sure where, but I'll probably reference it in the podcast later. There was um, there was these facts and figures that came out basically saying that, oh, yes, lots of new mental health workers have been hired mm. for HDHB. But then there was a commentary on it saying, well, okay, yeah, there's been more people hired, but you do realise that the, that the amount of patients who need to be seen has become higher as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, they should be taking into consideration, like, all aspects of it, like, all sides yeah, to yeah, the coin or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I think especially in Mark's case, when they didn't spend as much time on him, yeah. it's really easy to sit there and be like, oh, he needed more time, because he did. Very much, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I kind of agree with you, like, but it's like, like, when you look at it like that, he needed more time. Yeah. Like, it's obviously, you know, X amount of... Um, mental health people, you know, and, and you know, why amount of um, people who need the care? Like, he needed more time, sure. The only way he was going to get it is if there were more people to care for everyone. Because mm. in, in saying that, yes, he needed more time, like, I would never expect him to get time over someone else. Every person that is in the overloaded system of wherever it is, be it Wellington or somewhere else, they all need more care. I'm not saying he should have got more care over everyone else because obviously – Every patient that came in with those same problems, you know, that day would have been seen that amount of time. Like, it's not that I wanted more care for him. It's that I think the system that he was in obviously wasn't serving anyone well. And and even the people working in it, because, you know, can you imagine being a mental health professional? And, you know, you, you, you know you've devoted your professional c- career to providing care to people. And all the care you can give to these people is like a small amount of time. Like, that must be crushing for these people. Like, I, I, I think they're victims of under-resourcing as much as the patients are. 100%, because I was talking to Marianne from Action Station, she was saying exactly the same thing, and that these people who are trying to do their best job come home at the end of the day and are just like, well, I can't. Like, I try my hardest, but I come home feeling guilty and upset and needing to see somebody themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because of the, the stresses that they're put under. Because it's obviously like 100 miles an hour all the damn time. That you can tell that they are overworked to say the least. They, you know, they, they you know, they tried their, they tried their best in Wellington. There was no one that didn't do their best, but you could tell that they were juggling a lot at the same time. And the, I mean, it's just that fact that they were doing so many things. You kind of feel like you're not getting the benefit of, you know, their full expertise. Yeah, exactly. And they're probably, I mean, I. I know that they would be capable of so much more if they yeah. were given more resources. Absolutely, absolutely. That's all yeah. you want is you don't. And Mark would have 
benefited from it as well as many other patients exactly. who would have been seen that day too. Exactly. I don't know. I guess I can, I can kind of speak to you know sort of my treatment in sort of Victoria's counselling system after Mark's death. I wasn't really affected by um, sort of a mental illness, but after Mark, well, he, he deteriorated to an extent, and he did um, he did eventually take his own life, and obviously that was a big blow for me. And I, um, as I, as you know, my parents are from Pakistani, they're receiving what I would consider quite, um, not substantial, but sort of adequate mental health help, grief counselling um, from the from their doctor. You know, they, they got it through their GP and they're seeing someone in Fakatani. Um, and, as, you know, I'm at Vic, so my primary healthcare provider at the moment is the Student Health Centre at Vic. And, you know, everyone I've seen has, you know, they've been fine, they've wanted to help, but the system itself feels very disjointed, like... I've had to do a lot of the work myself, like in terms of um, connecting people with people and, um, you know, like I pulled out of two of my papers because I had to go home for a funeral and I stayed there for like a long time and um, like a month and then you know, just to be with my parents after, you know, something horrific had happened and um, like just the whole process and like just dealing with student finance. I, I, I withdrew from two of my papers because the workload was um, just too much. And like everyone, every individual person understands and is, you know, accommodating. But the system as a whole, as a structure, it doesn't, all the different pieces don't work in tandem. So a lot of the, I've had to do a lot of the legwork in terms of, um, you know, running around after people. Like the first I like. I found out in the morning. I got a call from my mum, and she said, um, "We don't know where Mark is. Um, can you call him? Can you text him? Blah blah blah." And I did. I tried to call him. I tried to text him. I didn't. I didn't get anywhere. And then they called me back an hour later, and they said, "Oh, they've found Mark on the beach. Um, he's dead." And I was obviously in a state of shock. I had no idea what to do, you know. And then I was kind of like, "I'm gonna have to go home. I'm gonna have to go home for a while." Um, kind of like, you know, walking around in a bit of a daze. But it was and it was 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekday. And one of the first things I did was um, I was just like, I need to, oh, my, my dad said he, he, they bought me an airfare. And then the first thing I did, I had, I had a few hours before I was going to fly out, was I went to student counselling and I told them, I, I just told the front desk, I'm like, my brother's committed suicide. Um, like, can you please just tell my lecturers that I'm not going to be in for a while, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing, you know, they were all very sympathetic. You know, they weren't um, unsympathetic to me, but they made me go into a private room and fill out (laughs) the standard mental health referral form. And I had to sit at a computer and I had to log in, like I had to get past the the student health login thing. I had to log out of that. I had to log into my account and I had to send them, I had to fill out this form. And I'm like, I found out my little brother's died like an hour ago, and I have to like click, oh, like, no, I don't want an agritat, like all this thing. It's like, I, I just I just wanted someone to email my lecturers. And I'm not, I'm not even saying like, I expected like this full kind of thing, but it's like, I feel like the structures. There should the, be like systems set in place for that. Yeah, it's very much, the system is, it's very much designed for academics. It's designed for me to, you know, have a stomach flu and need a note saying I, 
need two weeks to extra on an essay or, you know, for my grandma to die and need to push a deadline back or do a test on a different day. Like it's not it's not designed for the full scope of people's mental health needs, but like but it should be because that's where like that's my mental health provider. That's my doctor. Like, you know, it, it, pretty much I don't know. It just doesn't it didn't feel like that what I was going through and what I needed was something that they knew how to do, but at the same time there are thousands of students at Vic. Like it, you know, maybe not the exact situation, but situations very similar to that must happen like, you know, fairly regularly, but it just seemed like the systems just weren't there. I was not in the place or the state of mind to like be wanting to do admin stuff. Like I didn't mm. want to have to like email all these people. I didn't like, I just didn't, I wanted it to be taken care of. And like, there are a lot of people doing work to you know, remove me from papers and give me extensions and whatnot. Like, so it wasn't like the work wasn't being done, but it just wasn't being done in a way that felt like my needs were being fully met. I don't know. Yeah, so it just kind of comes back down to that, like, core structural issue, Yeah, I right? think so, yeah. Because, I mean, you come in and you're just like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, I was like, can you just tell my <laughs> and these health, these health professionals are like, okay, come into this room and you'll get interrupted and yeah they were just they were just very shocked that like what was happening to me I just wished that there had been some kind of procedure for them to follow or some kind of like I don't know it just didn't it didn't seem like I was going in there with a question that they were or or a situation that they were designed to help with surely you know people lose parents people lose siblings friends Mm. like bad things happen to people that they have to take time out like surely I just think like like a, like a, a GP right like my parents got their mental their their grief counseling. They got it through the GP. And like it's something that was relatively easy for them to do. Like there was a procedure they followed like the GPs used to, you know, referring people to these things. And like student health is my GP. I'm registered mm. there. I get my prescriptions from there, you know. The doctors are like pretty good. But like I like the only mental health stuff I've been offered is pretty much just stuff to help me with my studies. Like, I haven't been offered any grief counselling. Like, and it's not like I want them to be a grief counsellor there, but, you know, there are grief counsellors in Wellington that I could be connected with. There yeah. are, you know, there there are other resources like out there. Like, they're so there. keen to refer you before. Like, why can't you refer be referred to somebody I know. specific to your mental health needs? I just, like, pretty much at the moment, I just feel like, like, if I just was registered at a normal GP, maybe not in Wellington, I've never been to a GP in Wellington, but... If I was registered at my old GP back in Fakatani, I would have access to a lot more resources than I would do currently because I don't feel like currently that I have anything that's really approaching adequate mental health support. Mm. Like, and I don't like I'm not I'm not experiencing a mental illness. I'm just going through like severe grief. Like, I just want a grief counselor. My last guest is Marianne Elliott. As co-founder and director of Story and Strategy at Action Station, an organisation all about the power of the people's voice, Marianne and I sat down to have a discussion around change and hope for the future as New Zealand makes mental health a priority this election. The way in which people come together to create change is astounding, and public action and initiative is what ensures us a fair representation of those who live in Aotearoa. Among many other things, Marianne and I discussed people power, 
a system stretched to its absolute limits and taking our chance to speak out. That the power of personal accounts and stories is something so essential as we use our voices, our stories and our vote to make a change we want to see. I'm here today with Marianne Elliott. You're part of Action Station. Do you want to kind of give me like a little introduction of yourself and what you do there? Sure. Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders of Action Station and co-director there with Laura O'Connell Rapida. I do the research uh, along with some of my colleagues that sits behind our campaigns. I look at the strategy for the campaigns and focus on the communication, particularly the storytelling around the campaigns. Yeah. So, um, and then do a little bit of everything else, administration <laughs> and operations and fundraising and you know what it's like in a tiny organisation. Yeah. yeah. I think especially as a co-founder, you kind of, it's, it's your baby, it's your brainchild, and so you'd want to put as much of yourself into it as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's been a good journey um, for me learning how to kind of give it my all without actually um, overdoing it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, today I brought you in here to talk about um, mental health and mm. mental health funding, which is obviously a huge topic and it's really hard to tackle, but um, I kind of wanted to start off by talking about a quote that I've seen on your website mm -hmm. where you stated, we all have a role to play in building a better future and that's why Action Station is about people-powered change. Yeah. Yeah, and so I kind of wanted you to elaborate a little bit on what do you mean by people-powered change? Sure. So I'm going to use mental health funding as, a, as an example. So a lot of different people are um, working towards increasing and improving not just increasing mental health funding in New Zealand, but making sure that that mental health funding is going into things that people need um, and being delivered to people in a way that suits people's needs. Lots of people are working towards that. Some people are doing it through um, working inside the system, inside the mental health system. Some people work in political parties. Uh, some people work at the Ministry of Health. You know, there's lots of different ways that people work towards creating change. Um, but the piece that we focus on, on at Action Station is saying, well, look, the money that gets spent on mental health, the money that comes from our public kind of funds, that's that's all of our money. Mm. That's money that we all pull together as a you know as a as country, a country. Yeah. and say we want some of this money to be devoted to ensuring that when any of us is in mental distress and need help, we can get it. Mm. So if it's not happening. One of the levers to change that is to, like, again, pull, but instead of pulling our money the way we do through a tax system, pull our voices and our networks of influence and um, our energy and our stories, mm. like really importantly, bring together our stories and apply pressure from the outside. So we're not in the system. Action Station, you know, isn't connected to any political party. We're not, we're not an inside um, organisation in terms of the government. We stay with the people and we say when people care about something, we get together and we apply pressure from the outside in. And what we've seen is in this case, the politicians start to listen. Yeah, well, for sure, because um, over here, obviously, you feature mental health as kind of like a key election issue. Mm. So that kind of came off the back of a campaign that you facilitated. I think it was just in June that it, that it was handed over to the government. Um, do you think public action like this has kind of been long overdue and that's why the politicians are finally listening? That's an interesting question. I mean, there has been public action, I think. There have mm. been 
uh, groups here, you know, a number of different groups that have um, worked to sort of express that public concern. Maybe what we were able to do with Action Station, and this is sort of a big part of the whole theory of what Action Station is here for, is that, you know, there's lots of specialist organisations mobilising around different issues, and they're really important and they do create change and we need them and we would never ever want to suggest that Action Station could replace them. But what Action Station does is um, recognises the fact that most of us care about lots of different issues and so we want a place where we can participate in um, meaningful, strategic, effective action around a wider range of those issues that we care about, which means that we build a much bigger community. Yeah, so kind of reach, moment, reach more people as well, in a way. Yeah, so what that means is that I think there has been public action around mm. mental health. I mean, I know there has, because I've been involved in it through other mental health organisations for years and years and years and years. But I think what happened with the People's Review of Mental Health was a couple of things came together. One was we made this um, sort of stri- this strategic commitment to running a campaign that was completely driven by people's stories. So it's, it's not... a, a a campaign that's driven by facts and figures and numbers. The facts and figures and numbers have been around for ages and it's not wasn't making the difference it needed. So it was story driven and I think that had impact. Um, the media were really receptive to it. A lot of journalists um, you know, clearly have told too many stories mm. in their working life about what happens when mental health services aren't available and I think a lot of journalists because they've covered those stories actually have quite a strong interest in um, and getting this issue onto the agenda as well. So I think that was working, that there was a really strong media support for this um, for this research report. And then the third thing is, yeah, I think we were able to mobilise a large number of people from across a wide range of different parts of New Zealand, different demographic groups, um, and I would say like right across the political spectrum. This was a campaign that attracted support from people who vote for every party. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of human nature to want to empathise with somebody. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, a lot of people have had lived experiences of mental health, whether it be themselves or their family members, friends, and those kinds of situations. And so, yeah. this kind of change, it's not new. Mm-mm. Um, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what your opinions on the funding mental health services have received, like, currently? So... As far as I can tell, what was announced in the budget was, um, in relation to mental health, there were a few different things going on. One part of it was this new national improvement program, which is looking at sort of identifying areas where mental health services in New Zealand need to improve. And a number of the areas that were identified in that were the same areas that came up in our story-based review. So Mm. we would agree that, you know, people were telling us they were problems. What I think is going to be really challenging around that is that DHBs have to fund it out of their baseline funding. So there's no additional funding for this National Improvement Programme. So it's good that there's an acknowledgement of, you know, the fact that some things need to improve. Um, I don't think it's good that they're expecting already overstretched DHBs um, where we're, you know, getting reports from frontline health staff and mental health staff that they're so overstretched that they themselves are developing mental health problems. Mm. So I don't think that's... I mean, they definitely need additional funding for that. And then the other piece of the budget was this big social investment program. And it was made clear uh, in, in the budget announcement, and I think that you know the, this campaign helped make this happen, that part of that funding will be dedicated to programs that will help um, 
rather than new provide additional mental health services, this is more of a preventive approach. So it was saying if we invest um, in social services in the early phases of children's lives, then those children might be able to avoid some of the stressors, whether that's financial stress or isolation or whatever mm. it is, that can lead to mental health problems later. Mm. And I can understand kind of like how to combat those at an early age. Yeah, or even just like, to be honest, if you really, you know, some of the some of the triggers for mental health issues include family violence and, you know, extreme poverty, the kind of poverty that creates massive social isolation, you know, isolation. So it's even less about kids developing coping mechanisms and just like, you know... Getting in there. Getting <laughs> risk factors yeah. out of their life. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to say that's a bad idea. No. That's a great idea. That's still not additional funding. Mm for mental health services, for the people who need them now. Yeah. Like, that's a great, you know, the, the, the word investment is the clue there. It's an investment in the future. It's about reducing, in theory, the, the need for yeah. mental health services in the future. So I personally think we still clearly have an overstrained mental health system that's been under-resourced for too long, neglected. It's getting down, run down. It's really, really alarming to read the stories that came in from people who work in the mental health system. Mm. They're going home at the end of the night just, you know, and crying because they're having to turn people away who clearly need their help. So I think we still have a problem. Mm. I think that's clear. And, um, you know, the government sort of didn't take, you know, didn't take the steps that were needed in this budget. This is now on the agenda as an election issue. Um, we have continued to say we need a full independent inquiry into the state of the mental health system in New Zealand. There are too many problems that can only be resolved by really revealing what the underlying problems are without in any way reducing the tragedy of lives that get lost because people can't access mental health services. There's also many people who are just living and pain and suffering and you know they they don't show up in in the statistics in the same way I mean and you know we keep track of people who die by suicide but the number of people who are experiencing real pain real mental and emotional pain and if we if they were experiencing real physical pain I feel like we would react differently um, as a country we would not be okay with people being left experiencing, you know, in some cases, extreme mental and emotional pain that carries a risk of death. You know, this is like, that's the seriousness. If that was happening in terms of physical health, it wouldn't be acceptable to anybody. So I, I do think we've got to change that. Yeah, it's kind of like with New Zealand, the government currently not really showing an interest in, as you said, like investing in the future. It's like investing in the future of the country with the future of the country who is like the millennial generation, those who come before mm. us. And so it's like, how does somebody think that they have a fair shot at a good life and at mm. good mental health services if they don't see their own government investing in their in their life and their wellbeing? Mm. Would you agree that's, that's kind of like, it's quite a broad statement, but um, just from experience, I feel like mental health is stigmatised in New Zealand mm. and it's really hard to speak out about it. Um, There's actually been a, a petition that's been um, running through our action station which is the part of action station where any member of the public or community can start their own campaigns and a young woman called Lucy started a campaign that was really focused on getting 
better education in the school curriculum, and particularly in the high school curriculum, around mental health, both in terms of being aware of what mental health is and knowing what, you know, what you might be experiencing when you're experiencing mental distress, but also education about how to take care of your own mental health. So definitely education is important. Um, there has been a lot of effort gone into, into that, and I guess um, I've, you know, I'm 45, I've been, um, you know, I've had experience of mental distress and um, had my own lived experience with mental health issues, and things have changed, um, which isn't to say that we're where we need to be, but where we are now as a country in terms of the openness with which we discuss mental health issues on the whole, obviously there's certainly lots of pockets where there's no openness at all, mm. uh, has improved. And so that's great. And so it's a real sign that you can keep going in that direction. And so we, we do need to keep investing in those um, programs that are focused on, you know, removing the fear and stigma around talking about mental health and providing people with, with great tools to, to understand and, and care for their own mental health. But if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna give people you know, more awareness and, and more openness to have the conversation. If we're going to encourage people to reach, you know, as in quote marks, reach out. And people do, and increasing numbers people do, and then there's no help available for them, then that's just cruel. Like, that's actually just cruel to tell people, when you feel this way, you Speak can get help. Mm. Talk, talk to somebody about it. Ask for help. And then they do, and then they get told, oh, sorry, you're not sick enough go home and when you feel suicidal, come back. Mm. I mean, that to me is... So to me, of course, it's really important that we continue that work of mm. raising awareness and creating openness, but then we've got to be matching that with the services that people need when mm. when people do ask for help. Otherwise, yeah. you, I actually think that's going to harm somebody even more if you tell them, ask for help, come on, talk to us, tell us what you need, and then they say, actually, I'm having a... Like, I'm having the worst time imaginable and I feel like these terrible things and I'm, it's taken all the courage I have to show up here and say this mm. and I know that I need help and how brave that is, right? That's really, it takes mm, so much courage when you're in that place and then to have somebody say, we've got nothing for you. Um, like to me, that's the worst case scenario we've got. We can't have that. If it takes more funds, it takes more funds. It's got to be a priority for us as a country if we look after each other. Um, have you personally had any experience with public mental health care mm. and how has this affected your approach to this kind of election issue? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a good question. And I actually wrote, um, I wrote a little bit about it in a spin-off article because they, there was this sort of suggestion that I might be you know, biased, politically biased when I was writing the, the People's Mental Health Report. And um, I don't, I don't accept that at all. Mm. I, I don't think this is a political issue. I think this is a human rights issue. Yeah. Um, but I do accept that I have personal experience of um, accessing public mental health services, and that, of course, that influences my um, the way that I read the stories when I read them. It's very easy for me to empathise with and believe people when they tell me what happens to them, um, because I've been in some of those places. So yes, I do. I have experienced um, accessing um, mental health services for myself, and that was quite a, a long time ago. I mean, like more than 10 years ago in New Zealand. Um, 
and since then I've been in a position to access privately funded mental health services when I've needed them Mm -hmm. and so I'm really aware of how different that is and I think that's um, that's a really profound inequality issue in our country that if you can afford to access talk therapy and publicly fund it and and privately fund that then you can access some fabulous um, really, really great services available privately funded in this country. But if you don't, if you can't pay for that yourself, and you have to go on a waiting list, and then you have to be, you know, sort of deemed to be sick enough. And I had actually tried to go through the publicly funded um, system when I got back from Afghanistan, and I had some um, trauma issues that were making it difficult for me to get by in my day-to-day life. There were certain triggers that are very common in yeah. daily life in New Zealand <laughs> that were making, like, that were paralysing me. Mm. Uh, and I did actually go through the public health system and I didn't qualify for um, for help. And I know that I was really lucky that I was able to go, you know what then, I'm going to prioritise this. I'm going to move my budget around. I'm going to not spend money on other things. But I had the money mm. to go and see somebody myself. So that really, that definitely affects my approach to this because I, um, earlier in my life, you know, I was able to access publicly funded services um, and just there's not as many available now. Mm. Well, do you think we're losing New Zealanders because of the kind of like you're not, you're not sick enough kind of stigma? That's certainly the sort of stories that we got in our in our report. Lots of them. I mean, I I found it really devastating. We got 500 stories were submitted. Um, there was a real range of them. You know, some people wrote in to say they'd had a wonderful experience and they'd. You know, they'd been able to access the help that they needed when they needed it, and that it made a huge difference to them. And so there were certainly some positive stories, but not surprisingly, when you say that you're, you know, running a review of a system, you get more of the stories from people who've, who have, um, who haven't had a great experience. And the story that I would say was the most common story for me was the story of somebody who said, you know, I showed up, I, I tried to get help. Um, I didn't qualify, um, or I had a long waiting list, a long waiting time, and during the wait time, my situation deteriorated. Or, you know, the the story from Robbie, um, who was featured in the front of our report, and Robbie is uh, did some Robbie Nicoly did some media work for us around the report, and he and his experience was that there was a waiting time. But there was also all these hoops he had to jump through in order to qualify for the publicly funded services that involved multiple visits to WINS and like difficult forms to fill out and having to go back and get references from landlords and proof of pay from previous employers. And like this is when he's experiencing massive mm. anxiety and depression. Like that, those things are hard to do when you're well. Yeah. You know, those are not easy things to do. I find them overwhelming when I'm well. And so the idea that when somebody is unwell, we don't just say, come here and we will give you, we will help you. And then when you're feeling better, we're going to have some paperwork that we have to figure out about, mm. you know, what you're entitled to and what, I don't know. It just feels to me so uncompassionate to say, first go and jump through all these complex administrative hoops and then we'll help the fact help you with this fact that you're actually really sick. Mm. I mean, I just yeah. Uh, the disparities are pretty horrific. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I've been really what's the word? Encouraged actually. I mean, as 
bad as the situation is in New Zealand right now, I've been really encouraged by the high level of support and mobilisation around this issue. 77% of New Zealanders in a recent poll said they think the government needs to do more for mental health services. So it's clear that the large majority of New Zealanders want those of us who need help when we are in distress or unwell. They want us to get the help that we want. And I found that really encouraging. So firstly, I just want to say, let, let's be encouraged by that. Mm. Because, you know, you talk, it is true that we've had a history as a country of being a bit sort of stoic about this stuff. And there's still traces of that, no doubt about it. But to have 77% of people polled in a representative sample say the government needs to do more about this. That's really encouraging. So what I want to do is build on that. Like, we're going into a... There's an election on the 23rd of September. Personally, I'm going to be voting for the party that commits to doing more on mental health. And in a meaningful way. Not just like, you know, I think it's not enough to say we're going to run a social investment program that's going to target vulnerable children and which will prevent them from needing... That's great. What about people who need help now? Yeah, we need both. We need both. And, uh, you know, also saying an improvement program that's going to tackle some of the problems in the mental health system, great. We're not saying that the mental health system as it is is perfect. Far from it. But many of its problems come from being massively underfunded. Mm. And I, when I say the mental health system, I'm including all the community mental health services who work so hard and do so much with so little. Um, you know, we had Evolve here in Wellington does great mental health and other health services for young people, had their funding cut. Mm. So for me, I think, let's, let's take encouragement from the fact that the majority, the large majority of New Zealanders care about this. Let's seize the opportunity. It's an election year. We get to tell our politicians what we care about and what we want them to commit to. Personally, I'll be voting for mental health this election. And, um, you know, if other people feel inspired to do that, like, let your MP know. Mm. Let them know. They're like, I want to see your party do something meaningful on this. Yeah. It makes me feel a bit more powerful. That's the people power thing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, we're not, you know, we're not um, helpless in this situation. And together, if we all, like, if everyone in New Zealand said that, said I'm voting for mental health this election. What would happen? Probably change. <laughs> change. Exactly. Change. And that's yeah. what needs to happen. Yeah, it really does. When I come to the conclusion of a podcast episode, I usually know what to say. I think, however, in this instance, whether it's a cop-out or not, I'm really at a loss for words. The public mental health system is in crisis. Our country is in crisis. Our people and their health are in crisis. It is time to use our agency for positive and meaningful change in the mental health sector. As lives are lost, there is a mounting number of those who are silent in their suffering because of a system unable to help. And as we see funding cuts to places like Evolve and Lifeline, are we surprised that we're losing our people? As Marianne said before, it's time to pull our voices, our networks and our stories and to apply pressure from the outside in. Because change starts with us. I'm your host, Hazel Osborne, and thanks for listening to Avocado on Toast. Check out the Avocado on Toast Instagram at Avocado on Toast Pod 
to see behind the scenes pictures and stories of the production of the podcast. And don't forget to leave comments and feedback so I can message you back. You can also find my blog at avo-ontoast.blogspot.co.nz and don't forget to subscribe to my channel here if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud and you'll hear me next week. It's got to be a funding issue because if they have enough money to do adequate treatment, then why wouldn't he be seen if there was enough money? You know, mm. why, why would it be so poor if they had enough money? Because it, it can only be a funding issue.